For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Maya Mukherjee. You're listening to Daybreak. Today, we go behind an investigation into Kenya's Mpala Research Center. The center is in part run by the university, yet in many ways, it carries a colonial legacy to this day. Assistant podcast editor Theo Wells-Backman and I spoke to the investigation's author, assistant news editor Miriam Waldvogel. We dove into the investigation process, the stories she uncovered, and the colonial history of Princeton's research in Kenya. Listen in. My name is Miriam Waldvogel, and I'm an assistant news editor at The Prince. So uh, we wanted to speak to you a little bit about your article um, that came out recently on um, a research center in Kenya, um, partially run by Princeton, it's seeming like. Could you just give us a very quick insight into what the center is and what you discovered about it. Yeah, so the Impala Research Center is a large-scale ecological and biological research preserve in central Kenya. The university is Impala's managing partner. There are other partners, um, including other American and Kenyan institutions, but the university sort of plays a predominant role in management of the center's land and institutional priorities. This article discusses kind of the colonial heritage of Impala and the ways in which that is still around today. What were you um, looking for and how did you kind of come across this series of questions that you ended up pursuing? In early February, early March of last year, we got a tip. Someone sent us anonymously a research article by a couple of British researchers about Impala. And the article discussed kind of more broadly the issue of Impala as a colonial space and decolonizing it, but also some very kind of specific allegations as to what life at the research center um, is like. So, for instance, the article detailed that in the staff village they had um, no running water and no electricity. And that the practices for dining in the research center meant that largely Kenyan staff and mostly international researchers were separated. Those two things in particular we found to be true. And in Kenya, were they aware of the article? Were they aware that these allegations were public and they just hadn't kind of gotten the the public awareness that they deserved yet? Yes. So... We gathered um, from talking to people that when the article had first come out, it had made a bit of a splash in the ecology and evolutionary biology department, which runs a study abroad program um, at Impala. Um, And there were a number of professors who were very engaged in doing research there. And so that had made its way around the department and, you know, had raised um, some eyebrows and some protests. Um, But really, outside of EEB, the article had not made much of an impact. So could you give us like a general overview of your timeline and the different stakeholders that came up in your story? I spoke to my first person in late March. It's now November, so it's 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 been definitely a process. I mean, at the beginning, we were speaking to largely Princeton affiliates. And then it got to the point where we we had established what we could with people who were affiliated with the research center um, through Princeton. Um, and I should also say I'm being like a little bit loose, like with who I talked to just because we did end up having a lot of people who requested that their names not be used in the piece. So that was something we had to keep in mind throughout. But then over the summer, it became clear that we were going to have to going to have to start to reach out to um, Kenyans and specifically, and not just Kenyans affiliated with Princeton, but those who were predominantly working in the country who were 
employed by the research center um, in some capacity. The, the, the nature of the relationships between Princeton, the Princeton students and Kenyan staff members um, at the research center is that they didn't really know each other. So we had a few names. We tried to go find contact information them and were not successful. So actually, I took to Facebook. I went on Facebook and I searched for people who listed the Impala Research Center as a former or current job. And I just DM'd and DM'd and DM'd. And that was how I got sources. The other thing was going through research papers published at the research center and noticing names that came up frequently and then reaching out to those people. So that was, I think, one definitely one of the most challenging elements of the story was trying to find these people who not only are an ocean away, um, but in many cases it was a complete cold call, cold email, cold text. You mentioned uh, in the article as well that there was an imbalance in the proportions of um, local Kenyan folks who were employees versus researchers. Mm -hmm. Um, Did that make perspectives from either camp sort of more difficult to get? So actually, one of the kind of unfortunate things about the story is that we weren't able to speak to any Kenyan staff members directly. And when I say staff members, I'm referring to people who are employed in non-research positions. They're living in the village at the research center. Although not all not all staff members live on campus, but we were only able to talk to Kenyan researchers. And they were still a challenge to find because, you know, one of the issues we discussed in the article is the fact that there aren't many of them. Um, especially when you look at the volume from American or British or other kind of Northern European universities. We also wanted to get a little bit into complications around speaking to people, especially Mm -hmm. there. Um, You mentioned that there was this massive time difference that made it difficult, but also that you spoke to a lot of people anonymously. Um, And we just wondered what those conversations were like in terms of what their kind of conditions were and what they felt the stakes were on, on them. I'll reiterate that Impala is an important scientific research site. So for many people, it's not just jobs, it's research and professional connections. And also virtually everyone I spoke to for this story recognized the kind of very pertinent issues facing the research center, but they also recognized that it is a really special place. People were obviously a little wary of speaking about the problems of a place which they hold very near and dear. And I think as a reporter, you kind of just have to be frank about what the article is about. You don't want to, you know, you, you, no, you don't want anyone, especially if they're speaking anonymously, to be surprised about what you write about them. So we, we, we were also at offering anonymity to people because we knew that it would be um, sensitive. I think repercussions were still a factor in that people were worried about losing jobs or impacting jobs or losing research opportunities. I'm not like, I don't want to say that the research center would retaliate against them, but certainly kind of broader in terms of their broader presence in the scientific or research community. We talked to one of the authors of the original article that kicked this whole thing off. And she said that when she published and her name was on there, she got some blowback from just fellow researchers. And so I think that was a concern when they were talking to us. There is a strong like historical element to your piece. Could you give us a recap of some of the main bits of the history with the Impala Research Center? And how did you go about piecing together that sort of long and complicated history? 
the research article gave us a place to start for sourcing. So there's a publication called the Kenyan Gazette, uh, which goes back to the colonial period where the Kenyan government publishes various kind of, you know, probate notices and things like that. Um, So land grants and wills and disease notices and things like that, they're all publicly available online on Google. And so Impala was originally, the land leases were originally held by George Small, who's a Princeton alum. And he was the one who donated the land to the university. And we were curious as to how, you know, who had held the land before him. And so we went back through the old Kenyan Gazettes, we searched for Impala, we searched for like the land parcel numbers, and we took it back as far as we could go to, but the kind of most clearly identifiable owner, the one who really starts to shape Impala into what it is, is a Czech noble named Adolf Schwarzenberg. Um, in the 1930s, who buys Impala. He builds the ranch house, which is kind of this big colonial-style building that houses some administrators and VIPs of the research center, and also some, like, irrigation systems and kind of the beginnings of infrastructure, because Impala was a cattle ranch before it was a research center. After Schwarzenberg dies, the land is acquired by Sam Small. Sam Small is George Small's brother, also a Princeton alum, class of 1940, I believe. And when Sam dies, the land land passes to George. But it was interesting to just see the historical documents and conversations around the time that the research center was being formed. So in 1994, George Small collaborates with the university and four other partners, the Impala Wildlife Foundation, which is his foundation, the Smithsonian, the National Museums of Kenya, and the Kenya Wildlife Services to, you know, make Impala a research center. And so we were able to trace that through a combination of, like, university archive and then, um, yeah, also Kenyan archives. And how do you think that that colonial history informs the sort of neo-colonial dynamics that are present in Impala today? So the British Army continues to conduct training exercises at Impala. They've been doing this for a number of years now. Um, it was a practice started by George Small, and that's in part because they help maintain the roads, maintain the water systems, the money they pay for the use of the land forms a significant part of the research center's budget, although they say that is decreasing and Impala is eventually hoping to end the partnership. In the 1950s, the British Army committed a wide range of well-documented atrocities during the Mau Mau Rebellion, which was Mm -hmm. an uprising in Kenya against British colonial rule. There's There's a quote of someone saying in the article, you know, you have staff members, you have researchers at Impala whose parents or grandparents were killed by the British Army. And Mm -hmm. so to have them conducting training exercises on the same land is... The juxtaposition, I imagine, is jarring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the piece discusses a lot about uh, the disparity between kind of how staff members and researchers are, are treated. Are there any kind of stories or anecdotes, factoids that you weren't able to include. So the unfortunate part is that you know, I'm thinking of there was one very good anecdote in particular who someone asked us not to share. And again, I think that's unfortunately one of the limitations of the stories that we were unable to talk to staff, but certainly the recollections of both Princeton and non-Princeton researchers. You know, we talked to some students who would, were, they were our age when they, when they went there and they maybe didn't totally clock 
um, was happening in Apollo. But now coming back to it a couple years later, they they were like, oh yeah, that was that was like totally weird. I, I wasn't having alarm bells going off. There were a couple of things that I think would have been really great to share, but we unfortunately were unable to. What do you think the outcome of this article may be in terms of both like public consciousness and also like university response? So I think, again, um, I'll reiterate that I think Impala is still relatively unknown among the Princeton community. So I think simply bringing to light that this place exists and the accompanying kind of colonial history and baggage is kind of significant enough as it is to, you know, bring that to the attention of the larger university community. In terms of the university's response, I would say in the past five years, there's been a very kind of big shift in the way the university has treated um, Impala, and a shift for the better in terms of the university took on an increased role at the research center. They were also there when the first... Black Canyon was appointed as the research center's executive director earlier this year, Dr. Winnie Kiro. She and her administration have been kind of very vocal and very candid with us about Impala's colonial past and what they intend to do decolonizing it. So there's there's less in terms of activism that, for example, sort of students and community members could could feasibly do to directly affect the issue? I'm sure there... I'm, I'm sure there could be more pressure put on the university to act quickly and support kind of more inc- like more critical engagement from our side of the partnership in terms of research, for example. I mean, the university is starting to make significant contributions towards making Impala better. For instance, they're funding the construction of a new staff village. One professor we spoke to kind of called the current model of science uh, Impala parachute science. You know, you fly over from Princeton, you get your data, you leave, and you don't really interact or give back to the local community mm-hmm. in a meaningful way. And I think that's something that will take many more years to change than, you know, simply building a new staff village, for instance. You can read Miriam's complete investigation at the link in the description. That's all for Daybreak today. Today's episode was written by me, sound engineered by Vitus LaRue, and produced under the 147th Managing Board of the Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horan, Class of 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Maya Mukherjee. Have a wonderful day.